More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. This is Kelly. Always happy to be kicking off another episode of the podcast. And I'm excited, especially for this week, because we are continuing with last week's interview with Jimmy Hinton. Part two is going to begin in just a few moments. But I want to give you a reminder if you're not yet a part of the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group, you got to find us there. Jimmy is actually a member of our group, and you can join the conversations that we have there. Just search Survivor Sanctuary sanctuary on Facebook, answer the membership question that you're going to be asked. It's very simple. And then I will add you into the group and you can join our conversations there. It's great uh, for support and to lift each other up and to hear each other's stories. And it's a way that we can continue these conversations that we're having on the podcast. Well, I want to dive right back in with Jimmy. Last time we heard about Jimmy's story and discovering that his father had been sexually abusing children for many years as a pastor and some one Jimmy really admired and respected. And this week, we're going to dive into some of the research that Jimmy has been doing for years since he was sort of thrown into advocacy. And we're going to learn more about spotting abusers and how abusers think, because that's a lot of what Jimmy does in his consulting with churches, his speaking engagements, and his upcoming book. So let's dive back into it with Jimmy. So I want to ask you, because you brought it up earlier, and this part to me, which I can't wait for your book to come out, February. My birthday is in February. It's already one of my favorite months of the year because of various nice. reasons. <laughs> but yeah. now I have another reason to be excited. So I, I'm sure you're going to touch on it in your your book. And I know that a lot of your consulting, you talk about this a lot. But your question of how did we miss it and you kind of delving into that and teaching people how to like spot abusers. Can you give us a little bit about like what we should be looking for uh, when it comes to trying to identify people who might be up to no good? Yeah. So first of all, we need to wipe free from our minds that abusers are timid, that they're nervous, that they're sheepish, that they're wrestling with temptation, that, you know, they're they're torn in two that part of them is good and part of them is bad and they you know there's this big internal dilemma um you know, we need to wipe that out of our minds we need to understand that abusers don't think about abusing their victims right and and I try to make this point without triggering people I try to make this point as bluntly as I can for people who have not been abused, try to imagine what it would take to actually follow through. I'm not talking about thinking about sexualizing a child, which is absolutely egregious enough. Um, right. It's 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 horrible. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's vile. But I try to get them to imagine what what would it take to actually follow through with it and and carry that out to complete that. Or just lessen that by a gajillion, and how about just an affair 
with an adult? What would it take to actually follow through and carry that to completion? But now we're talking about a whole nother level because this is, it, it's, it's a felony offense. It's criminal. It's with a minor who cannot consent. You know that it's a felony offense. You know that it's, it's, it's wrong at every single level. And you not only thought about it, but you carried it out. And the average uh, pedophile has, the numbers are kind of all over the place, but, but I think a good solid number is they have a minimum of 60 victims. That's not instances, that's individual victims by the time they ever get caught, if they ever get caught. And I think those numbers are much higher. So those are, imagine doing that to 60 different little kids over and over and over and over again. So, you know, we have to understand it's not accidental. It's not getting caught up in sin. It's not struggling with temptation. All these cliches that church leaders want to throw at this, it's none of those. What it is, is it's intentional. It's incredibly calculated. It's rehearsed. It's practiced and it's well executed. They don't make mistakes. Your average pedophile abuser does not make mistakes. So how do we spot them? How do we look for them? Here's where my research is a little bit different because most trainings teach you to look for grooming behaviors, right? You're looking for you're looking for an offender, which is like looking for a needle in a haystack. And all the researchers say that. They're like, it's nearly impossible, even if you're really well equipped, it's still almost impossible to spot one out of a crowd. Well, that's not helpful. Right. Um, you know, because abusers can walk into a room and within seconds, they can pick out all the vulnerable people in the room, both adults and children. They already have their targets selected and marked. And now they just begin this testing process where they start doing these series of benign tests to find out is, you know, was I right? Was my gut right about the, what the vulnerabilities are? And, uh, you know, can I push the limits and can I keep taking that to the next level? So they begin testing in front of all kinds of people. They do this in public on purpose. Um, so I teach people to look for some of those testing techniques. And um, when I boil this down in, the, in its most simplest terms, I tell people, as far as application, here are the three things that you should look for. When you walk into any room, when there's more than two adults present and there are a couple children uh, here's what you look for. You watch people's eyes, you watch people's hands, and you listen to people's words in that order. And so the eyes, the first thing I look for is who are the other watchers in this room? Who are the people observing who are looking for us, right? I'm not looking for the abuser. I'm I'm looking for people like us, like I'll spot people who have vulnerabilities, who I think might have vulnerabilities. And then I start looking for the people who are looking for them because that's what abusers do. You know, they're, there's, they're looking, they're, they're taking it all in. They're taking inventory. 
And the other thing they're doing with their eyes is they're sexualizing people because that's what they do. And, uh, you know, I, I said this, I think, down in Florida when I spoke at the Courage Conference, but every woman knows what it's like to be sexually undressed. You know, like you, you don't misinterpret that look, at least not very often. When somebody's undressing you physically with their eyes, you can feel it. It just feels gross. It looks gross. You know how they're looking at you. Right. We can see that with adult men and teenage girls. We can spot the perverts pretty easily. Yeah. Um, you know, go to a shopping mall and just sit for 30 minutes and just watch people. You can see who the perverts are pretty quickly. And you know what they're thinking because of how they look. The problem is when children start shifting to prepubescence, we no longer see people staring at kids that way. And it's not because they all of a sudden stop looking at, at, at humans that way. It's that our expectations shift. We don't expect people to be looking at prepubescent children thinking, my God, look at that kid, you know, like right. we're not expecting it. So it's just science. The human brain doesn't see what it doesn't expect to see. And that's how magicians, stage magicians, make a living off of exploiting this. And so it's just retraining our brains to, to be able to spot those kinds of things. Who are the perverts in the room who are, who are looking that same way with that same look at minor children? And if, if, if I see that, then I start looking for people's hands. Where are their hands? Because people, when they're in that testing phase, abusers, when they're in the testing phase, are constantly touching in benign ways at first, but it might be a touch on the shoulder. It might be a pat on the head. It might be a pat on the side, a pat on the hip. Um, those are very intentional. Every single touch is intentional and they're constantly touching. They're not abusing at this point, but they're touching. They're constantly, they're seeing how does, does the kid shrink back? Do mom and dad's eyes move to my hand or, you know, is there a high level of awareness or can I maintain their eye contact whenever I talk to them as I'm touching all over their kid. Uh, and then eventually that shifts, it progresses, and then they'll full on abuse kids right in front of us. Right. And then listen to the words. Are they using manipulative speech patterns? Are they, are they mining information? Are they asking too many questions? Are they uh, inflating their credentials? Are they trying to look better than what they are? Are they pointing out all the good that they do in life? You know, those are kind of the things that I listen for. You know, you posted, I think, a blog post about this at one point, um, maybe a year or two ago. And after I read about like the three things to look for, like watching the eyes, watching the hands, listening to the words, I think you even said something about the way that they walk. Like you yeah. can't, you cannot unlearn those things. Yeah. And it was like, it's almost a little bit disturbing because things come to your mind that maybe you've, you've struggled with understanding for a long time. And suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, this makes sense. Like, especially the information mining I've, I've like been able to recall people in my life who just don't sit right. And then I start to think about like the eyes, the hands, the words, and then it's just like, oh my goodness, maybe that's why I had this awful, like weird feeling around these people who constantly ask questions and never say anything about themselves or. Yeah. They don't or reciprocate. They, 
Right. It's just, hey, tell me everything about yourself. And it's it's really eye-opening. And I'm, I mean, I'm excited, especially. I, you're going to touch more on that in, in your book, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, you know, I want to say too, like, there are some people who raise, I mean, with good reason, they, they say, well, that obviously can't, can't be the tell-all that tells us that people are abusers. And, you know, right. that's, that's a fair criticism and that's a hundred percent right. I'm not going to look at somebody who's high, you know, high on my radar and point the finger and say, I know you're a pedophile, you know, cause right. that's nonsense. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what I do know is I know these patterns really, really well that abusive people have, and they're incredibly consistent. They're very concrete. And so at a bare minimum, even if the person is not an abuser and they're constantly coming up and touching all over people's shoulders and, you know, tussling their hair and saying how cute they are and, you know, asking deeply personal questions about, about their life, they're just an idiot. <laughs> um, you know, that's a fact and that's, you know, those are boundaries that they shouldn't be crossing. So I have right. no problem walking up to somebody and saying, you're being really inappropriate. Like you're, you're tussling the hair of these kids. You're rubbing on their shoulders. You walk up behind women and you rub their shoulders. Like just stop because right. you're being gross. And, uh, <laughs> it's kind of fun to do because, <laughs> Because they try to make you look like, you know, you're judgmental and you're overreactive. And I'm like, no, like, let me just go around and start asking all the people who you've been touching all over. And, you know, I'll just ask them how they feel about you touching them. No, 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 no. Don't do that. <laughs> well, right. why? Like, you just told me I was being overreactive. Uh, so if I'm being, if I, you know, I want to know, I would like to learn if I'm being overreactive. So I'm trying to help you. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't know what to do with that. You know, it makes them really uncomfortable, which is the point. Yeah. If people are making other people uncomfortable, we need to turn the tables on them and make them feel uncomfortable. And uh, exactly. so, you know, again, at the end of the day, I, you know, unless there's evidence or there's been some kind of an allegation, I'm not willing to point at somebody and say, I know you're an abuser because I right. don't, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to make stuff up just to try to pin somebody or corner somebody. That's that's so unethical on so many levels. Right. It's one of the frustrating things, I think, about some of what we do. And that is that you can have like intuition about people and have absolutely zero evidence of the fact that they have actually abused. And I went through that a year ago, a little, it's actually been a year and a half ago now at, at my former church where I just, I knew that someone, and, and this was before I really, the things that you're talking about now, I really didn't know them. I was a little more ignorant of, of some of the ways that abusers operate. I just knew that there was something not right. And when I began being very outspoken about abuse, this person actually could not any longer look me in the eye. And that was yeah. another thing, like their personality toward me completely changed. And yes. like he could not, he would lower his gaze whenever I was around. And whereas before he'd been friendly and like, hey, can I help you with this? And can I help you with that? And when I started speaking out about sexual abuse within the church, and I was very vocal about it on Facebook and on Twitter and 
and, you know, in my blogs and it was before the podcast, but when he could no longer look me in the eye and he just acted weird around me from that point on it, that set off like a red flag. But, you know, I sat for, for like a year after that, not really having any evidence. I just would sit frustrated in church. Like he's always around a certain age of boy and it's always this certain age group and he's constantly surrounded by them and he's never around adults. And, And I know they say that, I know that many people get along great with adults who abuse kids, but Sure. There were just so many little things that I just, it was like this intuitive feeling and you know, the, the relief that you said you feel and you get excited when people get caught. That's how I felt when he got arrested for abusing someone outside of the church. Uh, because it was yeah. like, finally, like all of, all of this that I've been so frustrated about, and, and maybe there was something I could have said or could have done. I, I remember I talked to you about it um, as mm-hmm. well. I, I don't know if there was something that I could have done looking back, maybe he was violating some of the church's rules about, you know, being with young people alone, uh, in the youth group. And, and that could have been addressed, but really you can't just go around accusing people. So do you have any no, advice for, for like when you have those feelings and, and your hackles go up, the hair stands up on the back of your neck, like any yeah, advice I, on how to deal with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we need to get over this uh, this idea that talking about boundary violations is somehow gossip. Um, it's not gossip. Uh, we need to have good systems of sharing communication because, you know, at the end of the day, what Kelly doesn't know, Kelly doesn't know. Um, and the same is true. If that's true for you, that's true for everybody else in that church or in that school or whatever the organization is. And so if we keep these things to ourselves, because we're thinking, right, if I say something, somebody's going to think I'm nuts. We've got to move beyond that and say, okay, here are some really tangible things in it. And it may be nothing, um, but it could be something. And so I just wanted to ask you, do you get any kind of weird feelings or have you seen any kind of boundaries that are being violated with this person? That's a fair question that I would hope people are asking of me. You know, that's a completely fair question. And, uh, you know, chances are that when, when your intuition is kicked up, somebody else's is as well. Right. And somebody else could well have information that's very important information. They've just never felt open to be able to talk about that because they thought they'd be labeled as a gossip. So I always encourage people to not only ask questions, especially of people who have um, children in that church. I would ask the parents, like, does your kid ever say anything that, you know, makes them feel uncomfortable around this guy or like, how does he talk about this person? You know, that's a fairly open-ended question. And if you start finding out information where people are like, yeah, there's, you know, he was joking about, you know, making penis jokes or whatever, you know, like just uh, inappropriate conversation. Take notes, document, 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 write these things down because we tend to forget. And especially if, if we bring it to any kind of leaders and they press us on it, you know, we tend to clam up or we forget important details, document it and say, look, these are the boundaries that we know are being violated. Like this isn't speculation. These are boundaries that people said, 
we witness this. And that becomes really important in tandem with written policies. Organizations have to have written policies that spell out what boundaries are and what the consequences are for violating those boundaries. Right. Because if everything's verbal at the end of the day, it's amazing how people who violate boundaries tend to have selective amnesia. Right. I didn't know that was, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to hug people for, you know, 45 seconds at a time. (laughs) You know, I didn't know they have this selective amnesia and it's amazing, but it happens every time. I think, um, and just going back to this instance that I'm referring to, like, it was crazy to me after the fact, the things that people said, like one deacon said, oh, my wife has hated this guy for years. And she's always said he's a pedophile. Like, oh, okay. And that was never brought oh, up that, to anyone in the church. Like that's kind of relevant. I mean, a little bit, you know, like the the this person literally just always called him a pedophile. Like there's a reason that somebody would say that. And it's not, you know, just you randomly see someone and you're like, oh, okay, well, today I'm hungry. So I your nick- call Yeah, your person. nickname is pedophile today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's like these red flags that we ignore, but I like what you said about having like policies in place because had I known what the church's policies were, or if they had them like written down where everybody is being told constantly. And I remember this, this person who did end up being a pedophile being at the church's safety training. It was like Nazarene safe. They used that program and he was there at the trainings, pictures of him, like they're front and center, you know, learning how to protect kids from pedophiles and, you know, there for those trainings. And at the same time, he was violating all these rules. And I asked somebody who was on the board later who, you know, talked to me about what had happened. And she said, honestly, we have rules in place. And she's like, I don't know how he slipped through the cracks. He, he just, you know, people, it was just normal, I guess, because they were like, oh, okay, well, we know that a grown adult man can't be around a teenage girl alone in cars. Like people are going to talk, but if he's got a boy with him, like nobody's going to think anything about that, that he's, oh, he's yeah. just given this kid a ride because this kid doesn't have parents or he's down and out and needs help. And I think it's so important for people to have like those rules in place and for everybody to know what they are. And like, even if you're the most upstanding person in the world, that if you violate one of them, that you have to be called out and not necessarily like in, in a mean way or something over the top, but just everybody knows we all follow these rules and that's just the way that it is. But I think that's why that's why policies are essential because one they apply equally to everybody. There are no power dynamics that that are at play because what applies to Kelly applies to Jimmy. You know, right. um, it applies to everybody equally. All the rules do. So that's that's one thing. And then another is that there's clarity, like there's no guessing one what the boundaries are and two how to respond if those boundaries are violated. It's not like this, well, we have to have a meeting and find a time for all the leaders to get together so we can pray about it and discuss it and figure out, you know, how we're, how we're going to move forward. And then, you know, and then a month goes by and two meetings later, they're still twiddling their thumbs. Like a written policy spells it out. You touch somebody on the shoulders and start rubbing, you know, rubbing them all over their shoulders. That's, a strike one. Uh, you get a written warning that goes in a file and, uh, you know, then a strike two, you get removed from the church or whatever, you know, like the, the, the violation, the consequences for violating those boundaries are spelled out. Uh, and that's really, really important, but also there's kind of a chain of command for 
reporting because you can't afford to have confusion if you have reportable incidences. Well, right. who do we talk to? Who's a mandated reporter? Who's not? Most places don't even know. When I do trainings that a lot of places don't know who the mandated reporters are, and they don't know that everybody qualifies under the law as a permissive reporter, right? which means you don't have to be a mandated reporter to make a report. Exactly. You're permitted you... to make a report uh, in good faith if you have a reasonable suspicion that abuse has occurred. And if you are an adult and you know of a child being abused, do you have an obligation to report that because like, like it's like witnessing a crime <laughs> you know you know that sure. something has happened yeah. and if it's an adult who can handle themselves then that's one thing but if it's a vulnerable person or a child that's completely different um, yeah but a policy spells out too who people like you who have concerns who do you talk to who do you go to you yeah. shouldn't have to guess you shouldn't have to be like well which which leader is going to be more receptive and might believe me that's nonsense yeah. A policy should have spelled out, here are the people who you go to if you have any concern, and here's the chain of command, and here are the levels of accountability, so that if anybody within that group pushes this to the wayside, there's a there's accountability where there's transparency, and they're going to be held to account. Like, when you talk to this person, there will be immediate action, period. So how do we get, like, because... All this is awesome, but it seems like in the majority of churches, there's no talk about sexual abuse. There's no talk about having, I mean, yes, little policies or, or whatever. Most people have some sort of a policy about some things in their church, but it almost seems like say nothing about it, do nothing about it until a crisis happens where, you know, we find out someone's been abused or there's an allegation and then suddenly, you know, you're just dealing with the fallout. So how do we get churches I want to say, like, how do we get them to care, like, before it starts happening or before they have, like, hard evidence that is happening in their church? Yeah, I, I mean, you can't force people to care, you know, any more than you can force two people together in marriage, you know? Like, it's people have to be passionate about protecting people because that's their heart. Um, with that said, we can put this on the radar of people by teaching classes, courses in seminary. And I think every seminary known to man across all denominations ought to be having entire courses on abuse in the church and how right. to respond and the theology of responding appropriately. I wish that my seminary would have had that. They didn't, and they still don't, to my knowledge, and they know what I do. You know, I've been very vocal with my seminary. Christine Parker, a good friend of mine who used to work at, at the seminary, has approached the leadership at the seminary saying, we will help you. Jimmy and I will help you get a course at the seminary. And she's gotten crickets. Wow. So if if that's the response from the people who are training our future leaders for the church, I mean... There's no other way to put it. We're screwed. Right. It, it's got to start at the seminary level, and they've got to get the hair, their head out of the mud and say, look, this is, this is rampant in the church, and we've got to train our, our pastors 
for how to see this and how to how to respond well and how to listen to survivors and how to not pat them on the head and you know tell them to forgive and move on right uh, we've got to do better than that i think that's that's a really great point that if it doesn't start that early as far as like in seminary that you know that's where eyes really need to be open when when people are training for the ministry to know that this is a big thing that you're going to deal with and I, I think that the knowledge that it's rampant like you said is just something that people aren't willing they are not willing to admit it like by and large nobody wants to admit like maybe this happens every once in a while it happens in some churches but it's not a thing that's like a huge problem in the church and people like they don't understand that it is a huge problem in the church. Yeah, it's massive. I can count easily on on one hand the number of churches that I've spoken to in the last nine years, and I've spoken to a lot. I can count on one hand the number of churches where I've not had somebody come up to me and disclose that they were being abused in that church. Wow. I mean, it, it, it is absolutely, absolutely prevalent. And these aren't churches. Typically, they're not churches who call me in because they, they know that there's abuse going on. Right. I mean, to, to the church's credit, they're calling me in because they heard about me somewhere or somebody is friends with me in the church and they, you know, they kind of push the leaders to have me come in. You know, typically, that's, that's why I get called into churches. Thankfully, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, for sure. But while I'm there, inevitably somebody will come up to me and say, I've, I was abused by a deacon in this church and I've never told anybody. You know, those are the kinds of things that we need to realize it's happening all over the place. It's very prevalent. It is. I think that it's it starts with the realization of that and, and being able to admit that to yourself and then uh, then to take the steps to be able to start preventing and responding the way that you need to. Otherwise, we're just basically waiting until abuse gets disclosed. That's it. Yeah, We're just for sure. sitting and letting it happen until somebody's brave enough to come forward. And in so many cases, it, it takes forever with good reason. And that's just not, that's not the way to fix abuse in the church. Just sit around and wait for the inevitable. Well, you know, I, I tell people from a secular analogy, we need to take a proactive stance and we need to be TSA agents, right? Like they, the, the TSA in coordination with the FAA has a whole list of rules and ways to, to check people and they have do not fly lists and people who are credible threats. And you don't see those TSA agents hugging people saying, come on in, all people are welcome on this airplane. Right. Regardless of your past, all people are welcome. You don't hear that from TSA because why? Because planes would be dropping out of the sky quicker than than they go up. Right. TSA, when they see a credible threat, whether it's in the airport or whether it's before somebody gets to an airport, what do they do? They stop them from getting on the plane and everybody thanks them. All travelers are like, thank God that these people are doing their job and they're they're keeping evil people off of these airplanes. They're checking our shoes for bombs. Yeah. And and people generally don't raise a big fuss. Sometimes people do, but it's just going to happen cuz they're always crazy people out there. <laughs> um, but but imagine if we took 
Jesus stance. Look at what Jesus did in John, John 10. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand doesn't do that. He cares nothing for the sheep. When the wolf comes in, he runs because right. he doesn't care about the sheep. And he gives us imagery of somebody who lays down across the, the gate that goes in and out of the sheep pen. And he's not laying down there because that's the most comfortable spot in the pasture. He's laying down because that's the entryway into the sheep pen. And he's saying, I'm not going to allow any wolves to come through this gate. And that's Jesus using that language. It would be awesome just to see more churches taking that stance and and understanding the importance and realizing the importance. And unfortunately, I feel like that I feel like seminaries are going to start paying more attention to this. And I, it's probably going to come down to the money that it costs to handle all of the abuse allegations and lawsuits that result from not caring about it. Yeah. I would go a step further. I would say that seminaries will only put this on their radar generally. There are some seminaries who are, um, you know, they're, they're starting courses and that that's definitely to be commended, but I think if seminaries are painted in a bad light, if people draw the the lines and make the connection and say, wait a second, this pastor that just was arrested for raping six of the congregants who were little bitty children went to X seminary and just graduated there, you know, 10 years ago. And wait a second, here's another one out in Nebraska who graduated from the same seminary and he just got arrested. You know, if we start connecting the dots back to the seminaries and and really highlight that and say, look, there's a problem and you guys need to acknowledge this and do something about it. Right. Unfortunately, I think that's the only way that seminaries are really going to start taking any kind of action. Right. If a lot of them. If they're going to look bad and which I feel like it all boils down to money in the end, because if you, if you get bad press and you look bad, then it's going to make your institution look bad to the people who may potentially want to go there. And then you've got to do like damage control and, and try and fix things. And my bleeding heart wants like, you know, to live in a magical fairyland where people just care about abuse because it's horrible. And what it does to victims is horrible. But I honestly, and eventually maybe, you know, taking a different route to it, like wanting to avoid lawsuits or wanting to avoid bad reputations, like maybe that'll get us to the place where we finally have our eyes opened to what people are dealing with and, and what they're suffering. And yeah. I think that's the main thing that led me into advocacy is just when my eyes were opened to this lifelong struggle that I had and finally realizing why, finally having an answer for things, it was like all these pieces of a puzzle just that were just in a big pile that made no sense, like clicking into place. I was just like, everybody has to know, like everyone has to know that this is what abuse does. And, and this is why that so many people are struggling with this stuff that they don't connect those dots and think this is happening in my life because somebody sexually abused me when I was five or six, you know? Um, Yeah. It just, getting however we need to get to that point if it can't be through like the emotional response of just wanting to help people mm-hmm. um even if it is through looking bad in the media or you know to churches or getting sued if if that's the route yeah. that we have to go and that's what it takes then i say whatever it takes it it has to happen churches uh, interestingly speak insurance too it's amazing they're fluent in insurance so one of the things that I will ask churches if if they're bleeding hearts for known 
uh, serial abusers and they want to keep them hidden in the church, I'll say, which of you leaders has uh, contacted your insurance company? And you get these these terrified looks. And I always volunteer because I'm a nice guy, Kelly. I always volunteer to be the one to contact their insurance company. And I have yet to be taken up on that offer, but that offer is out there. I say, I will contact them and let them know that you guys don't have a policy, that you have a registered sex offender knowingly in your congregation, and you intentionally have chosen to not inform your congregants that you have a registered sex offender here. If you want me to be the one to call the insurance company, I'll do it. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. They true. speak. They speak insurance. They really do. Well, Jimmy, I feel like I could probably talk to you for five hundred years, and we could like cover so much stuff because you're you're a wealth of knowledge, and you're great to talk to. But I know that you also have a family and a life and all that good stuff. So, um, I yeah. want to. Just in closing, um, you're doing so much uh, for for so many people. You're doing so many things. Like you're writing a book. You have the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast. You have your website where you blog. What services do you offer churches? And like, how can people use like your knowledge to help their their church, their organization? What kinds of things do you have available? Yep. So I do um, full day trainings and I do that for any organization, really. I do it for churches, for schools, police departments, prison employees, uh, corrections officers, uh, and the military. So yeah, I do, I do trainings on deception and deception recognition. I also do keynote talks. Sometimes churches just want to have me come in and put abuse on the radar. Um, and so I offer that as a service. Uh, I do consulting that so far has been all online, which is pretty convenient both for the church and for me. But, uh, yeah, if there's a situation like what I was in where there's an allegation that comes up and I didn't have a clue what to do, I would have paid very good money for a consultant to come alongside of me and just say, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here are some recommendations. Um, here's how to draft a statement to the church, et cetera, et cetera. So I offer that consulting as a service and, um, yeah, those are my services. Awesome. Well, people can find you at jimmyhinton.org and they can find the speaking out on sex abuse podcast that you do weekly, which is amazing. Anywhere you listen to podcasts pretty much, right? Yep. It is and on just about every platform that I can think of. I'll link to all of this in the show notes. So people can just go there and find uh, where, where you are online. You're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, all the places and you, you blog regularly and um, it's just, it's great information. And I hope someday, <laughs> I hope someday to have other pastors and um, advocates who are, you know, doing the same kind of stuff. Um, to add to the mix, but right now there aren't a whole lot. And so, um, I know that I can yeah. speak for many survivors when I say that we appreciate the stuff that you do. You're, you're not getting rich doing it yeah. and it's not no, like I'm not. bringing you glory <laughs> and fame, but it is, it is definitely something that I know that to survivors, it just feels good to us to have somebody who you weren't abused yourself and you, 
you care about survivors and about fixing the problem. And I know that that's important, especially because you're a pastor. And I'm also going to link to, um, well, I think that you put it on Facebook each week where you actually live stream your church services. And we've got a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are unable to walk into church and who want that community and are, are unable to find it really. Um, and maybe just because of some of the issues they have with having been abused in the church, they're not able to darken the door, but I think it's awesome yes. that you stream those services and people can find you, uh, at church every Sunday too. So yeah, I'll link absolutely. to all that. And I appreciate it, Very Jimmy. Good. And do you have an exact date for the book that's coming out in February or, uh, I, th- if I remember right, I was just told this past week, but my life is a blur. I believe it's February, uh, 15th. Okay. February 15th. I believe that's the day the before my birthday. It's a birthday. Oh, present. Yeah? I'm so nice. excited. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, thank you so much, awesome. Jimmy. I really appreciate it. Um, you take the time you, to come on the show. All right. Yeah, for sure. My pleasure. What a great chat with Jimmy. It's been great the past couple of episodes, getting to know him a little bit more and to find out about some of the exciting stuff that he's got coming up. Well, I have links to Jimmy Hinton, his blog, his podcast, his social media. You can find it in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. And don't forget to join us on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. Jimmy is actually a member of Survivor Sanctuary as well, so you may be able to chat with him there sometime. Just search Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook, request to join. Make sure you answer the membership question and I'll add you in. Well, that's it for today's episode. I will catch you back here next time on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.